0: Someone's at the door! (laughs) Can you get that? at the door! Get the door!
1: Here we go with another drop-in session.
0: Surprise! Entree! I just dropped in.
1: Exclusively on PRP.FM.
2: We have a guest in studio, and we have Vanessa. Good to see you again. They always say, um, a man who needs no introduction. But then they introduce him, so I'm just going to leave it. No, I don't... (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I let's just start with a little memory hit, okay? And uh, we have our guest in studio. We'll in- reintroduce him as he is known today. But back about what year was it? 1981 for this particular song? 1982. Where were you in 1982? Johnny and the Distractions.
2: I think that one still rings true. It's complicated now. (laughs) Portland Radio Project, Johnny and the Distractions.
1: And uh, with us, our special guest this morning for our drop-in session, John Koontz, with a new album, The Lost Cause, which is going to be taking a bow at uh, Mission Theater next Saturday. So we'll have all the information and tickets and links and all that. But I wanted to spend a little bit of time, if I could, John, reminiscing, if you don't mind. uh, Because I had just arrived in Portland, uh, coming out of the punk scene in New York, and it was, uh, you caught my heart immediately. You know, I liked the roughness of the sound, and this is. But this particular album we were just talking about, Let It Rock, Mm -hmm. came out in 1982 when Huey Lewis and the News came out with their big thing. Yeah, and so you were in a world. You were in a complicated world doing your thing as Johnny and the D's, and but then the stuff that we were hearing was the Journeys and the Hueys, and you know, it was very pop pop rock, I guess I would define it as. And you were having a different grittier sound.
3: It was a good thing and it was a bad thing. Uh, and '82 radio was still wide open, and they were playing lots of new music, and that's the way new artists were broken. Was on uh, FM Radio.
1: Yeah, we were playing a we were playing a lot of stuff out of England, uh, electronic stuff, you know, dance stuff that was coming in. Yeah,
3: we were we we were somewhat hopeful because uh, some um, straight ahead American rock and roll, like Tom Petty and some guys like that, had broken through, and uh, we you know didn't really sound like them but you know that we felt there was some hope but our record uh let it rock was pretty it was pretty uh, inexpensively recorded very quickly it was live off the floor it was pretty gritty and gnarly and they sent it out to radio and as it turned out that was a good thing because at the time radio uh, jocks and programmers were taken to it it was the number one added record the first week out of the box and then by the end of that month it was on 150 stations across the U.S. Most of the comments were like I like this because it's you know not slick Mm -hmm. and so that sort of worked in our favor.
1: Where are you originally from?
3: Uh, Born and
2: raised in Washington D.C. My
3: family's all from North Carolina.
1: Really? really.
2: I don't know if there is a thought process at the time you were there but I always remember like Steve like when the when the market was veering more country, he ended up going more rock, and then people didn't like that. And then it was veering back more toward the kind of country middle was going back. And he went the other way. So was there a thought process there, or is it just, screw it, we're making the music we want to make? And
3: If we're going back to Washington, D.C., we're going back to, you know, like I'm mean, in my early teens. And uh, I'm a pretty old guy now. But uh, I was there, you know, in the Kennedy assassination, and three months later, the Beatles came. And... Uh, I remember when they, WWDC guy on WWDC got a hold of a friend of his in England and sent him a little seven-inch single of "I Want to Hold Your Hand." They started playing it. And That came on the radio and was like, "What is that?" Nobody knew what it was. Yeah. And then, and then in February they were there, and I was my mom worked for a uh, small newspaper, and I got tickets and got to go see it. And that was like a revelation, ground zero.
1: Had you, had you already been thinking about music as a teen?
3: Yeah, I, I had, you know, back then you ought, you didn't live in the world that we live in now. You didn't have all this stuff. You didn't have, you know, phones and,
1: and, and iTunes digital
3: stuff and all.
1: Yeah, you know,
3: yeah. I didn't even know what any of these people looked like. I had about 10 45s and one album. And I used, you know, I used to put on Link Ray and Raymond, Jack the Ripper. But there was no magazine or anything that told you about what any of this was about. So I didn't even know what those guys looked like. So yeah, I was sitting on the end of my bed banging and stuff and dreaming about you know playing rock and roll, and, but I had no idea what you know, what it
1: really, what yeah. it really really was. The, well,
3: the Beatles were a little bit of an instructive, uh, that was instructive
1: for a lot of people. Yeah. I think you know on the back of your record you talk about uh, what you heard at the age of five. Can you tell that story?
3: Yeah, um, my family's all from North Carolina. I used to spend a lot of time down there, and when I was like five years old, we were down on this. Uh, uh, Fishing pier with a little boardwalk, and there was a jukebox there, with this gnarly uh, R&B tune, obscure R&B tune, just blaring out of it, and that was like the moment for me. I just said, "What is that?" And it's it the same thing, you know. I'm five. I have no idea what it is. Five years old. And as far as I knew, the only place that I could hear that music was out of that box on that boardwalk. I didn't know that it was that they were records and that people actually made these, and you could hear them on the radio. In certain neighborhoods. It was all a mystery, wasn't it? And yeah, totally.
1: Before we move away from Johnny and the distractions, you were here in Portland at a time where it was really exciting for for a lot of break bands breaking out and making music like crazy. I mean, I think it, it seems to me it was very competitive.
3: It was it was really competitive, but it was also a very diverse. I mean, it was um, it's still really diverse. You know, it's just it's a different era. But back then, if we're going there. You know you, had, you know, you had a great band, The Wipers. You know, they mm-hmm. made, I think, one of the greatest records that ever came out of this town, the Over the Edge. And uh, there was a really healthy jazz scene here with some really great jazz players, and they were working. There was a lot of jazz clubs. And then, um, yeah, I guess the uh, first people to strike, Marvin Randy, Ross... Got signed to Geffen. Quarterflash, and, uh, yeah.
1: That was a really huge thing.
3: Yeah, that was. It yeah. opened the
1: door. I feel like it opened the door for guys like your band, Johnny and the Distractions. I mean, everybody could just kind of pile on board.
3: Well, yeah, it sent a more. Uh, it sent a few more lobster eaters sniffing around, mm-hmm. you know, to see what was going on. And and a few of them came up and they looked at us and they just went nah. You know? <laughs> finally, uh, we got on a lot of uh, regional radio. Um, we toured a lot in the region and Oregon, Washington, Idaho. Uh, british columbia and we got on those stations and we they started reporting and uh we Traction. ended up getting signed by AM records and uh that was a good thing bad thing you know we made the record we did tour we were on the jay giles freeze frame tour in 82
1: i was gonna yeah. ask I, I seem to remember that there was a big name that you guys were with well
3: yeah we toured with a lot of folks we toured with giles we toured with tom petty uh we open for john jett we the really funny thing was that agency put us on, on as an opening act for a band called Asia. Oh. And um, yeah, their audience. Oh, wow. Their audience hated us.
1: I can imagine. And, hmm. and,
3: and the band hated us too, and so you know.
1: That didn't work out. Well, by the some end of the A&R tour, some A and R person wasn't getting it right.
3: You know, by the end of the tour, their bus said Asia, and on the front of our bus it said Not Asia. <laughs>
1: Some good memories of, of that era. Uh, yeah. Portland had a very very healthy club scene, as I recall too. I mean, you could really make a living. I think it's getting a little harder here because a lot of clubs are closing right now. Um, you know that because of high rent and this and that and the other, and they're you know they're getting rid of, of venues.
3: Yeah, things changed a lot in you know mid 80s. Light rail came in downtown, tore the whole place up. And insurance policies, for guys that used to own those big venues, you know, used to be able to go into an 800,000 seat capacity club. You know, and the insurance writers on those rooms got pretty heavy duty and it got a lot harder for those guys to keep those places going. You got a lot of places with music now, but a lot of it is uh, small bands set up on the floor in the corner. You know, don't Mm -hmm. play too loud because people are not on stakes. And uh, I did that for a long time to make a living, but I I quit it last year. There's also Mm -hmm. a lot of healthy places where you can go play stuff Mm -hmm. where people can listen and they do listen. And they dance and have a good time. I've been fortunate in the in the years I've been here. This is like release number thirteen for me. And after I left AM Records, which was I wasn't on there very long, I started just putting out independent um, product. And um, I had a trio for a while called Gas Hogs, and we put out a couple CDs. And then I started making acoustic solo uh, CDs and doing that sort of thing. Just I solo acoustic. You doing that, yeah. And I've always been lucky enough to sell my product and do, you know, recoup and sell. So you don't have
1: to work for a living someplace else.
3: Well, I used to work in a music store fixing broken stuff during the day, but it closed.
1: (laughs) We won't mention their name.
2: This is KSFL LP Portland, Portland Radio Project, and you're listening to John Koontz in studio.
1: Well, let's leap right into the new album, The Lost Cause. Um, You have... Uh, also referring back to your the liner notes, lost cause is kind of ominous.
3: It's something that draws up a lot of, uh, you know, probably as many questions as more questions than answers. And in, in our sense, uh, we're talking about um, going to a place, you know, and just say on the back of the liner notes that you can have your Orwellian digital world. I'm not joining that parade I found my reward, lost in it, long gone, with the help of my band, not coming back. All that remains is your solace from this, the lost cause.
1: I think this is a good time to maybe test drive something from the lost cause. Sure enough. Yeah, okay,
2: let's do it. This one is called The Dog Was Right, John Kuntz, on Portland Radio Project.
0: sister shoulder teeth I turned on a corner and said My nose wasn't open. I just didn't see that the dog Dog. was right. That the dog dog was right.
2: A Portland Radio Project, John Kuntz and the Dog was right. And as I listened to your old stuff, because in the 80s I wasn't here, I was toiling away as a promotion director in a small-town country radio station, um, my immediate thought, unbidden, as I listened to the old and the new, was Joe Strummer, in yeah. the sense of, like, no less of a fist in the air at this point, but uh, a different way... That you're telling people about your defiance oh, that's that's kind of flattering, yeah, um well
3: I, uh, I can I, hear that yeah, yeah, there, I had a lot of help on the record, I mean, uh, you know, for a long time, just made these uh, the last few records were just me in a rhythm section, and maybe a keyboard player, and ended up playing all the guitars and stuff. This is being on eight track
2: tape machine with only eight channels to record <laughs> to, <laughs> did you have a um, Did you have a um, razor blade and splicing tape at any point? Absolutely.
3: (laughs) Where did you
1: find that kind of studio? (laughs)
2: Uh, It's right here in Portland on Fremont Street, Fremont
3: Recording. And uh, really great studios. A lot of people recording there now. Uh, But uh, some of the talent on here is just really, um, that's really what uh, made the record for me. uh, There's a great horn section on here. Uh, Three guys, two of them work with a really great band called Pin and the Hornets. And the uh, lead uh, chair there, a fellow named Chris Mercer, he's from England. He's uh, kind of a legend from the late 60s going into the 70s. Uh, he was the go-to guy in the London studio scene. He's played on more records than than we could name. He was telling me about it. Some guy sent him a copy of Radar Love and asked him to... Uh, and he goes i forgot i played the saxophone on you know golden era, golden era there, yeah. right
1: what a great and, song that is <laughs> yeah. and so
3: uh and then yeah. brad ulrich uh who plays with him in that band on baritone sax and on clarinet on that last track and Jill mccarthy the beautiful trumpet uh the girls singing i call them the angels of mercy choir uh, Moria <laughs> Massa and mel and sarah they were uh, they were all working with the Ural Thomas and the Pain. I was lucky to get them to do backgrounds. Uh, so trading off some lead vocals with a very talented gal, Laurie Calhoun, great singer. And then my old buddy from the Distractions on Bass, LaRue Todd, Fred Ingram on drums. Uh, we were able to get Dover Weinberg on Hammond organ. He's uh, Robert Cray's keyboard player. Oh, nice. And Evan Schles uh, playing the old Horlitzer piano. Danny Schaffler blows some tenor saxophone solos. He used to be with the Crazy Eights.
1: Yeah, of course, Danny Shuffle. Yeah. yeah, nice. You got a crew there.
3: And uh buddy mine who's now playing in the band, Dave Gill, playing guitar, and then me playing guitar and jumping around like a idiot.
1: You know, I wanted to say, uh, we were talking about how this is a complex record, right, Joe? That's got so much going yeah. on. You could hear it in this song that we just heard off The Lost Cause, the new the new record. Because there, you it's not just a straight-ahead rock and roll kind of A-B-A, a, whatever the A-B-B-A B, B, a thing is in rock and roll. But you go through a lot of different territory. Uh, but one thing I wanted to give uh, you another shout-out to you personally, John, is your voice sa- is sounding really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, still have the courage to get out there and sing. That means a lot.
2: Well, and still have the pipes, too. Like, yeah. I saw Meatloaf in Vegas a couple of years Uh-oh. ago, and it wasn't good. Oh, no. So, yeah, you still got to have it physically and emotionally.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I'd like to hear another song, and then we can come back and talk about what motivated this this particular record, because I know that you have a defiant streak in you. But there are, there are some interesting moments in this record. They're not all defiant, but it, just like Joe the Joe Strummer thing that Joe was just talking about. So uh, what are we going to hear off The Lost Cause?
3: I think we're going to hear a song called Be Careful Where You Point That Thing.
2: This is it. On Portland Radio Project. Where you point that thing, good advice in any time, but today especially. It's John Kuntz, and he's got an album, album release show. It's next Saturday,
1: but it's already available at Music Millennium.
2: All right, cool. And the show next Saturday, eight o'clock, Mission Theater.
1: And uh, the Lost Cause is uh, is got you go through a lot of territory on it. There's uh, we're gonna play one of my favorite tracks when we finish out this session. But I wanted to talk about what motivated you. What were you thinking, you know, when you were writing these songs? Because, back in you said 2007 during mm-hmm. the Bush era, you put out a, th- a thing called "It Can Never Happen Here," and there's barbed wire and it's really like scary. Uh, you know, it's some very defiant songs in here. But yeah. this is this is a little different kind of an album. There's a lot, a lot of tenderness to it, for one thing.
3: Yeah, there wasn't a lot of tenderness back in 07. That's a much scarier record. Um, this record's a, a, probably a bit more accessible. Um, there's not as many songs that would get me on a no-fly list like on a couple of previous things I made. When you talk about the lost cause, you know, if you're our age, or even a little bit younger, you've watched a lot of things go away, and uh, you've seen a lot of things come and go, and and uh, the idea of the lost cause isn't that uh, everything is lost, or, you know, it's what you have left, you know, is, is really what's important. and our lost cause is just a special place that we like to go to that we still hold dear this kind of music and you know the fact that's recorded on a totally antiquated eight track tape machine
1: that was a decision that you made yeah going and, in
3: well I, I didn't even to be on to be perfectly honest I, I wasn't planning on making a record I would already made 12 records and I was pondering the question does the world need another record from me probably not <laughs> and um, he invited us into the studio to give it a trial run, and I really like. So you either know how to do this type of recording, and he did. Brad Giles, and so uh,
1: over at Fremont Studio,
3: over at Fremont Recording, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so I wrote a song for the session, went in, and then I just started cranking out tunes. And uh, in between sessions, and the band would show up. They didn't know any of the songs; they hadn't heard a demo. They'd hear the song. I'd teach it to them. As soon as they could get through it, I'd yell "Roll tape," and so that's the way it was done. And then the horn players would come in later, and all stand and around sit, one mic. Your
1: Angels of Mercy, or An the Angel that? Of
3: Mercy Choir would yeah. come in and sing. Mm-hmm. But nobody had heard anything. Everybody walked in with this confused look on their face. You know, so you know the lost is a good word. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the lost cause. I I I think it. Uh, you know, what am I? Let's see. I'm sixty-four. First record came out in 1980. I've uh, never had a gold record. Uh, why do you keep doing this? I'm sold about 160,000 units and counting. So, yeah, my career is kind of a lost cause in the, in the, as far as the financial reward goes. But uh, like I say on the liner notes, uh, amid the dark promise of worthless fortunes, I came to know one truth. Compromise is death. (laughs)
1: Oh, You feel good about The Lost Cause, the new record.
3: Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. I I feel real good about it.
1: Good. There's going to be a lot of cause to celebrate. Um, That's going to be next Saturday. Mission Theater on February the 4th time is flying by. John, it's been just wonderful seeing you again. It's been a while since we talked, so that's always a good thing. Never far from my mind, you know, because you're out there doing music.
3: And all you people out there in in radio land, this (laughs) is broadcast radio. Tell your friends. This is where it's
2: at, man. Broadcast radio. It's free. It's your airwaves. Dig it. And we're going to take it out with Woman Stronger Than Man on Portland Radio Project. Mm
0: Child coming now you
1: Just heard a drop-in session.
0: Do dropping in
1: exclusively at PRP.fm. Don't
0: come back now.